You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, or as I now call the online edition of the show, Arts in the Time of Sequestration. My name is Diana Moxham. We have a full schedule of visits today and a longer than usual chat with Skylark bookshop owner Alex George, as this is the week his new novel comes out. So, like last week, we are going to imagine ourselves in the physical world and I am going to put on my bike helmet and set off down the trail and into town to visit with people who are keeping the arts alive while we all stay at home. First stop then is on South 9th Street where I'm going to run into Lakota and get a cup of tea to go. Can you put it in here please? I have my own reusable cup. Thanks. Before heading next door to the quiet oasis of Skylark Bookshop and the most excited author in town this week. Good morning, Alex, and congratulations on the Paris Hours. Your latest literary child is less than one week away from its official birth. Does May the 5th feel momentous, or does it feel like it's been out in the world for months already? Yeah, it's it's a funny thing because there is this weird, uh, strange thing that time does when you publish a book. Um, you know, May the 5th of 2020 has been on my horizon for well over a year now, and... Um, and it, it's extraordinary to suddenly find myself here. And it sort of goes, has gone very quickly and gone very slowly at the same time, but there is still a slight sense of disbelief that we're actually, we're actually here now, but it's exciting. And uh, there seems to be a lot going on. So even if it's not, <laughs> not exactly quite how we thought the launch was gonna go, but you know, we are launching the book and uh, we're looking forward to it. Nowadays in modern publishing, I mean, it has been circulating for a long while. I mean, you know, critics have read it, you've received the reviews, it's gone out to bookstores, friends have read it. So does a launch date still feel like maybe it did do 15 years ago? Or does it feel a little, a little softer these days? No, no, it still feels, because that was all happening 15 years ago as well. Uh, I mean, it still feels like a big deal. What's what's different this time around with the Paris Hours is that the book was chosen um, as the one of the one of five titles for the Book of the Month Club, and it was actually chosen for the April Book of the Month Club. So one of the reasons why it feels a little bit different this time around is that thousands of copies have gone out and have been read already by people who chose the book as their title for this month. And so that's been, it's been fun though, because the thing about Book of the Month Club is that those people really like their Instagram posts. <laughs> um, and so it's been fun to go on and to, to watch everybody post about the book and post their reviews about the book. So it, it, this time it does feel as if the book has already been out there because it is in the atmosphere. I mean, I just looked on Goodreads and there, I think there are over 1400 reviews already for the book which given the fact that it's not been published yet is is a little sort of you get this vertiginous feeling of what earth is going on um but it, in a good way so that's been one thing and then of course the other thing is with the virus i mean everything has changed obviously and publishing a book in this time is is a very different proposition than what we thought it was going to be two months ago i had a two-week national book tour lined up and i was going to be going all over the country and uh, as it is i will be staying in my sitting room 
and still doing some things, still doing some events, but not quite the same. So the Paris hours, I'm sure you have rehearsed your answer for what to say when people say to you, so what's it about? So given that now we are a wrapped audience, we're not standing in an elevator or casually swinging past you at a cocktail party. <laughs> tell us really, what is it about? So, so the book is set in, unsurprisingly, in Paris, uh, and it takes place over the course of one hot summer's day in 1927. And it is a novel, but it really can be broken down into four separate stories. And it's, these stories are woven together in alternating chapters. And while the stories interconnect and cross-pollinate each other at various times in various different ways, each one of those stories has its own principal character. And so it's really a story about four different people. There is a lovesick painter who is hopelessly in debt and trying to escape some thugs who want their money back. There's a refugee from the Armenian genocide who performs puppet shows for children in uh, Parisian parks in a language that they don't understand. There is a writer who wanders the streets searching for his missing daughter. And then finally, there is the maid of Marcel Proust, the great novelist. And the whole story really begins with her. And I was reading a memoir of Celeste Albaret, who is Proust's real life maid. And uh, it's a fascinating book and it sort of details their relationship in great detail. But one of the things that really caught my attention was one particular passage where Proust asked her to burn all of his notebooks that contained the kernel of his great masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time. And there were, I think, 32 or 34 notebooks that she burned. And um, that was really, that sort of something sort of caught uh, on my, in my brain. And I kept thinking about it and I kept thinking sort of, well, what if, um, what if she didn't burn them all? And what if she actually kept one for herself? And really, that's what was the seed of the entire book and everything sort of grew from there. And although Proust is very much a peripheral character in the book, you know, his, his novel In Search of Lost Time could be taken as the overarching theme of my book because these four stories that I talk about, they, although it takes place over one day and we see these four characters move through the day, there's lots of flashbacks and uh, it weaves the past with the present of each of these these characters, they're all, they're all seeking something that they've lost. And so it's a book about hope and about art and family and loss and love. The fact that it's set over 24 hours, as a reader, that really didn't strike me. It was, it was unimportant to me because really it is a covers 10 years of everybody's history. There are flashbacks and, and that mm -hmm. is kind of the story. I wondered why you felt you wanted to give it this time setting of a single day because it, for, as a reader it I didn't I didn't care about that I cared about the people yeah well I'm glad you said that I mean a lot of people love the fact that it's set over a course over the course of one day uh, and that was something that really interesting to them it, it wasn't especially interesting to me uh, <laughs> but the question about about why did I do it that was something that I asked myself eternally while I was writing this thing because <laughs> it was an <laughs> immense pain and I sort of set myself this extraordinarily complicated and difficult structural hurdle that I had to sort of clamber over somewhat inelegantly at times but but it was it was a challenge I mean it was it was fun to do I'm glad I did it that way but um yeah I mean for me the the, the and then not just this book but any book whether I'm writing it or reading it that, that's all interesting and fun I suppose but really for me what makes a book worth reading are the, the emotional stories of the characters and I was more focused on that 
and telling those truths. But the um, yeah, the one day thing was fun, and uh, and it, it did make me focus <laughs> uh, as well as sort of bash my head against the wall. And I had to sort of throw away extraneous stuff to make sure that it also worked. So I, I enjoyed it, but uh, <laughs> I won't be doing it again. I can tell you that. <laughs> The book comes under the category of historical fiction. There are real people in the story. Josephine Baker, Ernest Hemingway, Sylvia Beach, Marcel Proust, Ravel, who are peripheral characters for the most part to the book. The main characters are the four people you talked about. But talk a little bit about the research you did to make sure they were at least largely accurately portrayed and were in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research on all of that stuff, and it's not something that I love to do. Some writers really enjoy the research. I have one friend in England who, if he could, would just do the research and not actually bother writing the book. For me, it's the other way around. I mean, I, I always sort of look at research as something that I do. It's almost like with a defensive tactic in that I don't want to get anything wrong. I sometimes use the metaphor of the story that I tell as a thread that you have to lay over the tapestry of history, and you want to make sure that the thread blends in with everything around it. So, you know, you have to, so as you said, you know, you had to, the characters who are there actually had to be living in Paris in 1927, otherwise it wouldn't have made a lot of sense. That being said, I mean, I, I read a lot about all of the characters who appear in the book and I enjoyed it very much. Um, but what I tried to do is to read as much as I could and then sort of ingest it and, and then sort of forget it and then write the characters so that, whatever came out was still a figment of my imagination, but hopefully informed by the facts and the research that I had done. So it's it's a kind of a it's kind of organic um sort of technique, but it, you know, and, and I know that there are lots of different ways of doing it, but that, that seemed to, to work for me. I I didn't want the research to bog everything down, which you know it can do. And just because character X likes this particular brand of wine, you don't actually need to tell <laughs> tell your reader that. I have read books in the past where you get the impression that the author is going, well, look, I read all these books, and so I'm going to tell you about them. You know, the story should come first. So that, that that's always been my approach. But, you know, they're, they're, they're wonderful characters, and I really enjoyed finding out about them. I'm curious whether those real people in the story were there from the outset or whether they arrived there because of the characters. Who came first? So they absolutely came first. And in fact, the story that has ended up on the page is very, very different to the story that I began writing when I started out down this particular road about writing a story in Paris. And it was actually, it began one Wednesday evening. I'd just been playing soccer in the indoor league which is my sort of ritual weekly humiliation. Uh, and I was driving from Forum uh, up home and there was music on KBIA uh, and there was this wonderful Ravel piece playing. And then at the end, the NPR announcer said, and there's dulcet tones of NPR announcers everywhere, well, that was Morris Ravel. And then he went on to tell this story about how the music was made. And it was commissioned by Serge Diagliev, who was a Russian impresario who... Um, started um, Les Ballets Russes in Paris, this very famous dance troupe. Uh, and then he talked about the incredible team of artists and creators who Diagliev surrounded himself with. And it's, it was astonishing. He had people like Pablo Picasso and Coco Chanel would design the costumes. And 
uh, Jean Cocteau would write the lyrics and uh, Stravinsky and Debussy would write the music and Marc Chagall would do the background. It was just absolutely bonkers. And I thought to myself, well, that's my story. That's that's the story I'm going to write. I'm going to write a story about Serge Diaghilev and these incredible geniuses who he surrounded himself with. So I began researching. That was that was sort of where 1920s Paris really began was through that. But then I, as I did my research and I realized or began to question at least whether or not these people really needed to have their story told. I mean, if you listen to a Ravel melody or if you look at a Marc Chagall painting, I mean, the art speaks for itself. It didn't really need me to help it along. So, and, you know, and, and by temperament, I'm drawn to quieter stories anyway. And so I took a different approach. And rather than putting those characters front and center in the book, I moved them all out to the outside and instead began to think about telling the stories of, for want of a better word, more ordinary people. And so that was where that was that. So, so, so the, to, to answer your question, which you asked about 25 minutes ago, <laughs> uh, the, um, yes, the, 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 the famous people were absolutely there first. Uh, they were in the middle and they moved out to the side. There is a painting in the book, painted by Guillaume, purchased by Gertrude Stein, and then gifted to Sylvia Beach. Maybe you could read the description of it, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. This is what Guillaume Blanc painted that long ago afternoon as he gazed at Suzanne Moriac from across his studio. A small house in the middle of a wood. On either side of the house erupts an army of trees streaking upward into swirling knots of darkness black stars of mordant energy. Ranks of lichen-wrapped trunks surge toward each other, the sinister labyrinth of shadows. There is no sky. The dark forest marauds across the canvas, annexing every square inch. There is a strip of lawn in front of the house. On the grass stands a solitary wooden chair. An owl is perched on the back of the chair. Its feathers are silver and purple. It is gazing off into the distance. A path leads to the house, but there is no door there, just a wall. The walls of the house are painted white. All the light gathers here, a radiant defiance against the encroaching shadows. But we cannot see what lies within Guillaume's little cottage in the forest, because it has no windows. No windows, no door. But no, there is a door. It is a rich, deep blue, and it sits in the very centre of the building's façade, suspended halfway between the ground and the roof. The door is the only way into the house. I, I love that description, and I am curious about its significance and how it arrived in your imagination. I have absolutely no idea, Diana. <laughs> um, you know, I was just reading it going, huh. <laughs> I was also, as I was reading, I was going, well, I suppose it was only a matter of time before somebody asked me about this. <laughs> the person who used to run um, an art gallery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I really should have seen that coming, shouldn't I? Um, I mean, I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, as you can tell, the total inarticulacy at this point. I, 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 it's probably terribly symbolic, but um, I'm not sure I actually would be able to explain it to you. I just, the, the, what I wanted to do was to, was to um, and I don't want to give too much away about what Guillaume was actually looking at when he painted that, that painting. Um, but it was a sense of 
being unable to reach what it is that you want. And so I guess that was really where I began. I'm kind of reverse engineering this and just trying to remember what it was that I I was doing. Um, But that's really, that would be it, I suppose. I wondered if it was in it, it came to you in a dream or something, if it, (laughs) or if maybe it was a real painting. No, no, I I, know, I definitely made it out. I mean, I think that just thinking it through, if I mean, Rousseau would be the artist, I guess, when I was thinking about it, particularly that that owl, the purple and silver owl, strikes me as being the sort of thing that he might have painted. And those dark colours that, that Rousseau often used. But more than that, it was all a bit vague. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, moving on. <laughs> There's another scene that I wanted to ask you about that happens when Surin, the exiled Armenian, um, who is out walking one day, and he hears two elderly Armenian men talking on the street. And and in the novel, you write, he has not heard another person speak his language since he arrived in France a decade ago. But when he does have a chance to talk to them, he shies away from it. I'm curious what inspired that scene, because for me, that was really a heart-twisting scene, that idea of not being able to speak your own language, never hearing it and feeling like it was lost to you forever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was heartbreaking for me too. And I mean, when I write these kinds of scenes, I don't, I wish I had some neat little answers for you with all of these things. All I can do, Diana, when I write them is write what feels true to me. Mm. I don't really overanalyze these things. I just sort of see what, what comes out. And it just felt to me that that just felt right. I mean, Soren is an incredibly lonely character. You know, his existence in Paris is very small. He just has one or two acquaintances that he speaks with and really no more. And his French isn't very good. And he, you know, he performs these puppet shows in Armenian. And and I was just thinking about, well, what would his reaction be? And I think that, you know, after 10 years of desperately wanting to hear this, this, this language spoken, I can well imagine that actually the thing that would happen would be that you would freeze up. You're almost sort of overcome and you wanted it too much. And so you know, he did that in the end, he did end up saying one or two words to them in Armenian and then sort of scuttled off as quickly as he could. And that felt right to me. You know, I can't really go much further than other than that, you know, when I do this stuff and I tell these stories, I just often have to just go by my gut and uh, it's instinct. But that felt right. And it's kind of the character deciding the outcome of, of their story to some degree too, I suppose. Do you, oh, for sure. Do yeah. you, um, talk, talking kind of on that, when you, when you started this book, did you know how it would end? Because it's a very clever <laughs> and, I mean, I didn't see it coming. It's a very dramatic and clever ending. And I wondered whether you started there and worked backwards or whether it just kind of came together while you were writing it. No, absolutely not. I mean, I write, uh, I mean, the nice way of saying it is to say that I write organically. What that means is that I can't really be bothered to plot very much. (laughs) And so I just wait and see what happens. Um, So, no, I I mean, and the the ending as it stands now uh, was not even in the draft of the book that was purchased by Macmillan. The book was was purchased by the publisher. And then I sat down with my editor, who I worked with before on my previous novel when, when she was at Penguin. Uh, and we had a conversation that went on for several hours. And at one point she said, have you thought about maybe X doing Y? 
And I thought, oh, that's funny. She's she's made a mistake. She's got the characters confused. <laughs> and I and I and I said, no, no, you've got that wrong. And she said, no, I, no, I, I actually meant what I said. And and I thought about it for a minute, and I thought, oh, that's brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, and so it. <laughs> And so this 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 twist at the end, unfortunately, I can't take any credit for. Um, it was it was really Amy Einhorn who uh, who came up with it. I just had to then go back and rewrite the whole book <laughs> to make it work. Um, so no, no, it absolutely wasn't there at the beginning. One day, one day, I will write a book where um, you know the ending is actually how I originally thought it might be. But um, I'm not nearly smart enough to start a book with that kind of complex. Uh, ending uh, in my head. Gosh, now it makes me really want to, you know, sneak into your computer and download the first draft and see how different it is <laughs> from the final book. <laughs> well, Alex, have, have you got any? Have you got any talks that are coming up? Online launch things that we can go to? Yeah, yeah. So there, there are quite a few actually. So our, um, let me see. So on Tuesday, which is the actual the the launch of the book on the 5th of May, doing a thing uh, online at 7 o'clock Central, uh, which is a, I, I think it's a webinar, and that's instead of actually launching the book at Skylark, which is what we were planning to do, of course, so this is the next best thing, everyone just has to provide their own booze, uh, and I'm going to be in conversation with Will Schwalbe, who is a Unbound a couple of years ago, who's a wonderful friend of mine and a wonderful writer, and he's written several books about books. Uh, and he's marvelous. And so we're going to be talking, and it's it's all online. There are various other things going on, other online conversations. I'm doing one the following night with Left Bank Books in St. Louis. And uh, yeah, so there, there are a number of things that that can be you can sort of log on and and see me. See marvelous. Me talk. Well, thank you so much. I could I could carry on talking to you for a long time about this book. <laughs> But we have to leave it there, so people will just have to go and buy the book and then seek you out and uh, <laughs> and ask you questions about it. Alex, congratulations <laughs> and thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Back outside again into the hustle and bustle of 9th Street. Only a short trip this time. I'm just going to go around the corner and up Cherry Street to Hit Street. Just need to unlock my bicycle and then we're underway. Ragtag Cinema Director Barbie Banks is going to be waiting for me at the big Ragtag Theatre. Hey Barbie, first of all, I want to thank you so much for having Extraordinary on this week's streaming schedule because it was a perfect escapism. We ordered dinner from Broadway Brewery and then we snuggled up on the sofa to stream it through Ragtag and it was hilarious and exactly as described, a tea cosy Ghostbusters. <laughs> I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I myself had such a great time watching it too it was wonderful so this week we have a new documentary well I guess it's kind of newish as it premiered last year at the Sydney Film Festival I think in June and you have a documentary that's returning that was a true false in 2019 plus a series of short films where shall we start I would love to talk about the Florida films that we are going to be showing. I'm very excited about these. So if you rented Pahokee um, last week, it is sticking around for a few more weeks. And um, it's by those filmmakers, Yvette Lucas and Patrick Bresnan. They have done a series of films of on the Florida Everglades and the teenagers that live there. And we're going to be showing four of those films and discussing them with the filmmakers tonight. So it's going to be really great. 
And so tell us a little bit about the, is there one, two, four films altogether? Right? Tell us about the four films a little bit. So uh, we'll start with The Rabbit Hunt, which came to True False in 2017. It's a short um, about a family who uh, does rabbit hunting and what that, how that brings their family together. Um, then The Send Off, which is a film about um, the very last day of high school for a group of teenagers in the Everglades. Skip Day, which is also about those same teenagers um, from the same high school as Pahokee, where they are skipping um, school. And I think we can all relate to that special day in high school where we, you know, had shenanigans with our friends. And then um, Roadside Attraction, which is the only one that I haven't seen, but it, it, it's about... Uh, a roadside attraction in the Florida Everglades and what that brings to the town where they live. So it's just a really reflective piece on what is happening in the Florida Everglades and the people who live there. There's a lot of race and class that plays into it. And so I'm just really excited. These two filmmakers, they're young and up and coming filmmakers, and they have taken a lot of care to show the people that live in the Florida Everglades and they have some really great producers that specifically work on the impact of film on communities that are lower class and um, how telling their stories can improve their situation. And so this, um, these two filmmakers have were kind of pinned as the people who can give the most care to that, mostly because that is where Patrick is from. And so it's kind of great to get to watch him show his the history of where he's from but also uh people with very different experiences from his own and to watch these they're only it's only one showing it's only seven o'clock tonight do yes. we do we stream it directly from the rectag site or is everything on twitch or is it just the discussion that's on twitch Everything will be on Twitch, so you'll just go to our uh, Twitch page, and there'll be an introduction from our programmer, Ted Rogers, and then we'll watch all the films, and then we will be zooming in the two filmmakers for a discussion, but it's all on Twitch, so you just have to pull up one website. Okay, and there's no donation possibility, or it, we don't pay for this one. No, it's free. Um, we will accept donations. Um, we'll post those links uh, on the Twitch page through our PayPal or our website, but it's free and open to the public. And what we hope will happen is you get a little insight into these filmmakers and then go and purchase Pahokee in the virtual screening rooms, which 50% of that comes back to us. Perfect. So the other big documentary that you have opening this week is called Capital in the 21st Century, which, like you had Slay the Dragon the other week, a political commentary. This, again, is a political slash economic commentary that will have the same effects of making you feel angry. <laughs> yes, honestly, I was a little nervous about showing this one at this time um, with so much economic uncertainty. But honestly, the film does such a good job of it feels like a, a fiction film where it's just a great story and helps you understand the situation we're in and give some hope on how we can fix it. And so it wasn't as doom and gloom as I thought I was going to feel afterwards. Um, so I say, give it a chance. I think people will really like it. There's a, you know, the uh, it's based on a book that was written that sold so many copies. And um, I was really impressed at how upbeat this film feels. And it didn't make me as angry. It made me, I don't know, proud of my liberalness that I have <laughs> and what I, how I would like to see our political world kind of go and, 
I think the filmmaker and writer of the book would agree with me. That is interesting because just from watching the trailer and reading about the film and then reading about the book, which I confess the book hadn't kind of crossed my radar, even though it was written, I think, about six years ago. And it is yeah. called Capital of the 21st Century by a rock star economist, Thomas Piketty, who's a French economist. It doesn't sound like it has hope in it. It sounds like it's, <laughs> like they say, it's the most important study of inequality in over 50 years. So how did they give us hope? There's just um, offer solutions and how to move into the future to make sure that inequality is not a thing that, um, I th their stance is that there will always be inequality, but doesn't have to be as big of a gap. And they give solutions, sort of empowering everybody to participate and making sure that that gap isn't as big as it is currently. I, you know, I'm not an economist. And so that was one other thing I liked about this film is that with very little background in that topic, I was able to fully understand it. And now I feel like I can have even more ammunition to back what I believe is the right thing to do with our world. <laughs> You know, it, obviously the film was produced long before we knew about coronavirus and mm -hmm. and all of the inequalities that this virus has shown us that exist in society and that it, it seems like maybe this is going to be the chance that we have, that breaking that idea of this entrenched capitalism and the rich getting richer seems so impossible, but this this time now is really changing a lot of things for, for more people. So maybe this is a great time to show the film. Yeah, a little reset for our, our world. And this is it, which is, um, yeah, they kind of talk about, they don't talk about uh, coronavirus, but they talk about what it will take to have that reset. And it's uh, a little foreshadowing of what, what actually happens. And it's made by a New Zealand filmmaker, Justin Pemberton, who does have kind of a link back to True False, right? Yes, he does. I'm blanking on the name he, of... Tickled. He was the executive yes, yes. producer on Tickled. <laughs> Which is, but yeah, if you haven't seen that film, it's on HBO. It's a magnificent. It actually might be on Netflix now too. I can't remember. But on HBO, they did a follow-up about the filmmaker and um, there's a bunch of people featured from True False because they filmed most of it while they were at the festival. So um, highly recommend watching that. Yeah, it's kind of cool to see a full circle coming back to our little community here. Although I imagine Capital in the 21st Century really couldn't be a lot more different than Tickled was. No, correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although in Tickled, there is, you know, kind of an evil rich guy and that, uh, that that's similar in this film too. <laughs> I guess so. So, okay, so that opens on, that opens today, Friday, and that will last yeah. for a couple of weeks or something, I guess, too. Um, Correct. Yeah. And then the final one is called The Hottest August. It's another documentary and it has been here in Columbia because it was at True Falls 2019. Tell us about yes. that. So um, it is about, it's a film by Brett Story. She had another film at True Falls called Prison in 12 Landscapes. She has very unique style of filmmaking where it's very observational. There's not a ton of dialogue or even like an arc of a story really but when you're watching these films you forget that because the footage is so beautiful and this one um really it, it looks at the you know hottest day in august in new york city and helps us understand climate change and what is happening in our world which again kind of goes back to this this time of pandemic and how we're seeing seeing some of that the earth healing itself with us taking a break. So 
it's beautifully shot. Um, this Brett story as a filmmaker, I think we're going to keep seeing really great things coming from her at True False too, just because she's a big fan of ours and we're a fan of hers. And that's okay. That also opens today and that will be here for a week or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she uh, she's a huge fan of Columbia, Missouri. And so she recorded a cute little intro to the film. And so you'll get to get to meet meet her a little if you didn't weren't able to see her at the festival well thank you so much barbie that's a great that great yep. week of films what what are yes. you out of interest before we close which films are you seeing the most downloads for we had our biggest opening weekend with Extraordinary. So I think people are wanting to see comedies. <laughs> and honestly, there's not a ton out there right now. So we're um, working with our distributors to see what else is out there. But yeah, definitely um, anything that helps you escape a little bit more from our um, what we're dealing with right now it tends to be what people want to see. We had a really good event on Tuesday with Como Shorts. Those were a, kind of a mix of drama and comedy and yeah, just anything that lets people participate in art and escape a little is what uh, what people want to see. Yeah, I'm on that bandwagon too. Well, thank yes. you. <laughs> thank you so much, Barbie. I'll chat to you next week. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Continuing north, it's another pretty short trip just up to Walnut Street, where this week for the fine arts section of the show, we're going to check in with Hannah Reeves at Sega Browdis Gallery to find out about their new May exhibit. So good morning, Hannah. Now, um, like everyone else, you are continuing to juggle how your branch of the arts continues in the digital world. And this is now going to be your second show coming up that will possibly only exist online and not in a physical space. Or will it? Have you actually hung the show? Uh, no, actually, we are we're pretty committed to our, um, you know, remote work and social distancing through this month. So we made arrangements with the five incredible artists of the May exhibit to have their work photographed really well. In a lot of cases, we're actually working solely with those high quality images. And then in a couple of cases, we do physically have the artwork, but we're not bringing our staff together. So we're not, we're not physically hanging in the space so that it just becomes a whole different intellectual project to conceive of an exhibit when you're not, you know, arranging pieces next to each other and moving around a room. So we're really kind of devoting a lot of brain power to it. Right. So if somebody buys something, then it ships directly from the artist, like you're not involved in that process at all. Um, in most cases for this month's exhibit, that will be true. We do actually have three um, Columbia artists in this exhibit. And so there is a little bit more of an option for a no contact local pickup, which we have still been doing. Like we are doing our version of curbside, you know, as safely as possible. But yeah, in some instances that, you know, it's somebody far away and basically an order comes in, we share everything we can from videos to, you know, detail images to, you know, questions answered by the artist directly sometimes, and then the work can go right to the purchaser. Now you're on your 
website, I mean, you can see all of the artworks laid out side by side. Mm -hmm. Have you looked at the software that you can get where you can kind of build a gallery space so it feels more like you're walking around a gallery? Have you? I love that. Did you see the um, the Columbia Art League version? Yes. Yeah, that's why I was thinking of it. That was my introduction to it recently. Yeah. If we need to continue this way, that's definitely something for us to look into. In the past, we've worked with Captured is the local small business that can actually come in and do a 3D scan of the space. That was something that we had planned until we needed to not bring people into the space at all. Um, so that's something that's a possibility down the road as well. We really like this, this local small business. And if we're able to install a physical exhibit, say possibly in June, then we could have this company come in and scan it so that people who are still choosing to you know, stay pretty distanced can, can get a good viewing of it. I was reading an article that I think uh, Jill Sager had posted yesterday from a magazine talking about going forward, that, that could, could this new normal actually benefit smaller galleries, that galleries are low density, they're not like theaters or cinemas or musical venues. And so of all of the arts, maybe art galleries are able to uh, come back into real life first and that and that we are all desperate for non-virtual spaces i mean everybody is complaining about how many online meetings they're doing and 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 whilst you know it's it's amazing that we have that technology and we can do it the idea of walking into a real space just seems like such a treat right now but also a little bit scary but you are very low density so what are, what are you thinking about the gallery opening and, and how you would handle that i know i well and i can only speak for myself you know as the director and somebody who thinks a lot about the space, but really, you know, I should say that that kind of decision is something that we're really good about making as a team. And we have a conversation scheduled for next week to really kind of start to think about, you know, how does each of us feel about what a safe reopen would look like? Where are we getting our data? Like on whom are we relying, you know, for the call regarding, you know, public health safety, um, but so that will be a pretty complex decision. That's all to say. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that I personally, though, am thinking about are, yeah, like aside from First Friday, like you said, our density is really low. And a lot of people do come separately at, you know, very diverse times and days, depending on their schedules, to have a somewhat private experience or to have a one-on-one -on -one experience. And that's actually a lot of the value that we're able to bring to visitors. And so even when we do host First Friday and we have hundreds of people coming through, we ask the people who are interested, whether it's in a, an email conversation later or an actual conversation that night, we ask those people who are truly interested in and drawn to a particular piece or an artist to come back and have a slower, you know, kind of more private experience of it anyway. And so I think about I think that we could be successful basically for a while, skipping the big event and all of the exposure that comes mm -hmm. with it um, and going straight to, you know, connecting people with something that we think that they should see in person, you know, saying to a particular client, hey, I know you have really loved Amy Meyer's work in the past. You have to see this series in person. Why don't you come in? You know, I'll pull out a few older pieces. I have these newer ones on the wall, you know, and we basically have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, right? So it's it's actually pretty easy to conceive of what that would look like because it's 
kind of the follow-up to First Friday that we've been doing. So I, I think that you're right, that we have a pretty potentially clear path. Mm. What do you think, from what sales you've been able to do over the last you know, month or six weeks, what kind of work do you feel people are gravitating towards right now? Do you feel like that's changed? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, thinking about what has sold, which, you know, artwork sales have actually remained really steady for us. Part of that is uh, some of the international platform and market that we have through Artsy so that even when, you know, sales might fluctuate in our local market, we have something that's kind of more spread out. But for whatever reason, we have, we have, you know, been able to continue selling artwork. For the most part, the patterns for any particular client look about the same to me. I'm kind of, I hadn't reflect on that, reflected on that, you know, really um, carefully yet until you asked that. But now that I'm thinking about it, each, each person that I've worked with in the last month, month and a half, I've said something like, hey, I know you've liked this kind of thing in the past. Here's something new that I think you should see that maybe you connect with. And, and that has kind of that's largely remained the same so that's an interesting question maybe potentially new artwork shoppers mm. um would give us a different picture of people seeking something new you know like if you've been in your space and you're so you're so like embedded in your home right now that you have a new sense of like how much your home environment matters and you need something in particular you know maybe it's the, the newer artwork shoppers considering that question that changed the picture of what people are seeking? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I is curious. We were t I was talking to Barbie about people wanting comedies. They want to escape. Uh, they're not looking for harder-edged films right now. And I wonder whether in the art world, fine art world too, whether people are seeking just things that feel more comforting or more mm -hmm. of an escape. Or, But I, I guess if you have a particular genre that you collect, you carry on collecting it. I think so. And maybe it's just more a sense of wanting that, like that sort of like reliably beautiful thing near you or around you or in right. your space. So the May exhibit, tell us a little bit about the artists you have here. This is such a beautiful exhibit. It's really, really diverse as far as um, subject media and materials, but there's a way in which we, we always kind of strive for this. It like flows together visually. And so I don't get that same um, juxtaposition of like hanging two things on the wall near each other. But I've noticed even as I'm like posting on Instagram, you know, choosing what sits next to what, there are some palette similarities that I really love. And you sort of start to see these threads where you can, you can see why like an Amy Meyer kind of belongs next to an Alexander Levesseur. So th that's been, it's just kind of a really beautiful set of things. Uh, the five artists are Alexander Levasseur, who is a uh, French-Canadian neo-surrealist painter. And then Amy Meyer is a, a local painter. A lot of folks know her name and know her work. She works in a primarily abstract way, but it, it refers to landscape. Really beautiful, bright, palette in this newest series of Amy's. Joel Sager, another, you know, obviously very familiar name, um, locally has a new series that kind of flows out of the last two series where you see this scenery that seems like it's kind of at the edge of the woods or at the edge of civilization with the solitary figure in the middle of each composition. So kind of figural meets, you know, landscape with the, uh, the signature kind of 
darkness of, of the Sager composition. Terry Mason is an artist who is totally new to us. We met him through our submission process last year. He's a, an internationally known mixed media sculptor and it has some, there really is like some great humor. There's kind of a neo-dadism or like a sense of Dada and the absurd in his sculpture. Um, some of my favorite pieces are these, they look like switch plates. Yes, or, mine too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that refer to body parts, but they're very fun. And some of that work also is just really colorful, interesting use of material, fully sculptural work. And then Kristen Martinsik, who is a Columbia artist as well. If we, I know all of us at the gallery really, really admire her her work and her craftsmanship, her dedication to her medium, which is kind of a combination of printmaking and fibers. And this series, which is one of her most popular, are bathing suits that she has, she's printed, like done the printmaking on these really special papers. And then she's actually constructed the pattern, actually sewn as if she were sewing the bathing suit, put the seams in with the thread and everything. She even puts her signature on a little uh, tag, like a little clothing tag that's on the inside right <laughs> hip of every suit. I mean, they're just extraordinary. Her palette is so lovely and subtle too that I've really enjoyed seeing that palette of Christians, which has been you know, a signature in her work for at least since like 2011, 2012, next to this kind of newer palette um, specific to this series by Amy Meyer, where you get these kind of fleshy pinks and tans and then the turquoise. Um, there's just some really beautiful juxtaposition there. It must be impossible when you're looking at all of this art, not just to be mentally hanging it in the gallery and thinking through the spaces and what you would hang <laughs> In on what panels yeah. and on what walls. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. All of the work is available for viewing at segabradisgallery.com. And you can see everybody's work and read their bios. It is a really lovely collection and it feels very spring-like. It does. Yeah, I've noticed that too. <laughs> that was kind of a nice surprise. <laughs> All right. Thank you, dear. I will uh, check back in with you in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, Hannah. All right. Thanks, Diana. So just one more stop on today's Whistle Stop Tour of the Arts. Around the corner from Walnut Street, down Orr Street, and up onto St. James Street to Talking Horse Theatre, where I get to have another improv lesson. So here we are, our next stop, Talking Horse Artistic Director Adam Bretsky and Stable Boys Wonder Woman Kathleen Johnson. Hello, Adam and Kathleen. Hello, hello. hello. So first of all, well done on a fabulous online Stable Boys Improv at Home event last week, Kathleen. Thank How you. long had you been rehearsing the online edition? We, well, we've been rehearsing online and via Zoom since we were no longer able to gather together in a group. And um, I think from the second we started, we were kind of thinking, how could we make this work? Could we make it work? Is it, you know, obviously it will never be the same as if we're, you know, all in the same room together with our audience, but like, is it worth it to do something uh, and to see it? And so we played around a lot with webinar. We used CEC, let us use their level of Zoom so that we could get that webinar in there. And we were like, oh, we can, we can do this. People will forgive Zoom aspects of this and we'll get to stretch our stretch some new muscles, I would say. It was definitely an interesting experience. 
So uh, what was really clever was, you know, if you were on a stage, you would have people step forward and be part of the scene and then step out of the scene. And that I thought you managed so well in people popping up into their Zoom windows and then closing the Zoom windows down and disappearing. Just that alone must have taken some practice. Yeah, you know, just figuring out the mechanics of it. It's just, you know, the, it's the tech stuff behind the scenes. And Molly, who normally runs our lights and sound, was like super helpful in kind of running that stuff. Obviously, there were, you know, certain types of edits that we all found ourselves really missing. You know, you can't on Zoom pull Adam to come forward because I want him to do something, or it's much less physical and a lot more verbal. And so thinking about, that kind of stuff was uh, really new and tricky. The other part that was really crazy and I think was actually a wonderful exercise as a performer of improv was the complete and total lack of feedback when you're in the moment. There was the chat, which was great and people used that. It was super fun to see, but I think any performer would tell you getting that feedback can drive you Um, but it also, you know, what's good can also be a harm, you know, because if you get too wrapped up as an improviser in how the audience is feeling something or reacting to something, you can potentially be making choices that aren't necessarily the strongest. And so we all had to force ourselves, I think, or perish, you know, but force ourselves to say, well, I'm just going to trust that this is working and keep making the best choices I can. And hopefully someone is laughing on the other end. So Adam, are you planning something similar for the ponies short form improv now? You know, it's a little, it's tough. Um, Yes, we've been talking a lot about what we can do. We had originally thought that we might get together and do kind of like a small show uh, at the theater. And then we got hit with the stay at home order and we had a hard time arguing that we were an essential business because, you know, we're not professional wrestling. So... (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of threw our plans off a little bit and uh, we're still talking about ideas, but I think the Stable Boys took a great step forward showing us how it can be done. So that's got our... I think in in some ways Zoom is almost a better fit for short form than it can be for long form, just in terms of the, the little added structure helps with some of those like transitions and popping in and out that we talked about. But without a doubt, it is hard, you know, and it's not the same as an audience but I think sometimes giving people something can be better than nothing so you know getting whatever you can out there even I love all of the ponies Facebook posts and like engagement on there too asking for suggestions or like you know different things like that I think in this time stuff like that is really great do you have a sense of how many people were signed in yeah we had um not including like performers, I think we hit right around mid fifties to 60, like right around there. So it was a good, it's, you know, it's hard to know couples or just one person on a computer in their house, but I was impressed with how many people showed up. We didn't lose too many people over the course of the hour too, which is like a, (laughs) now that's a real important plus. (laughs) Yeah, we were sitting on the sofa watching it. So, and we put it up on the TV. And so we weren't near the, the chat you know, section. So yeah. I felt kind of bad because, you know, we'd be sitting there laughing and I thought, oh, you can't hear this. Should I get up and go and stand by the computer and go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> no, but you know, it's good. It's, I think it's a good process to just say, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna make these choices and 
try not to care if somebody else thinks it's funny. Yeah. Well, well done. It was great. Do you have another one lined up? We're talking about it. Yeah, you know, we're we're really waiting to hear kind of where the the city of Columbia is going to go next, as I'm sure Adam is. We've also talked about the idea mm. of if we can be in the same space together as our small group and potentially have someone in there filming it, um, that that, you know, could also be an option too. Right. But I think we definitely want to do something else and provide something else for the community. So, and it was super successful for the theater. People were really generous. I think we raised over $500 for the theater. So that was great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So improv lesson today, where are we going? Well, we wanted to take some time today to talk about questions in improv. One of the things that I tell all my new members of the Ponies in getting started is questions are a little bit dangerous when you're in an improv scene because sometimes what people do is when they get put on the spot and they have to come up with an idea, they'll instead put it in a question to say like, oh, what are you doing over there, Diana? That way I put all the onus of building that scene on my scene partner instead of just coming up with an idea that says, hey, we're decoupaging popsicle sticks with uh, glitter. You know, you can come up with any idea at all, but because sometimes people don't trust their first instinct, they'll put the question on their scene partner to come up with some ideas. Yeah, I think questions can, like just like Adam said, they can be a really wonderful tool for moving a scene forward in the same way questions are a really wonderful way to like move any sort of relationship forward. Like you can really begin to better understand someone and and kind of dig deeper in it. But I think often when you're first starting out or even if you're not first starting out, but you're nervous um, in a scene or, or there are other things on your mind, questions become like the crutches you know, that, that you put on where you're like, well, I'm saying things without having to actually say something and, you know, doesn't take care of your scene partner as well. And so then though, the alternate side of that is if you lose that early. And I know that I have done this, you're like, I will never ask a question. I will (laughs) never inquire about something, which can also leave you feeling a bit flat or too aggressive. Do you have a game that illustrates that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. So one of the best things that you can do to get out of the asking questions is to go ahead and get all of your questions out of the way. So there's a short form game called Questions Only. Uh, Kathleen and I are going to do a scene for you. And the catch is we can only say our lines in the form of questions. So Diana, give give us a scene. Give us an idea to start something out. We're at the farmer's market. Okay, very good. Ooh, are did did you did you make this jelly by hand? Does it look like I work here? <laughs> oh, did I forget to take my medicine this morning? Ugh. Can't a guy go out in a green vest without being accused of working at a farmer's market? Oh, did did my question come off as offensive? Oh, oh, hmm. Don't you think you should have asked yourself that before asking me? Should we start over? Should we just start this whole thing over? Is that what you want? <sighs> Do you know how kind of intense and like overbearing you're seeming right now? 
I had no idea. <laughs> so then that would be a buzz and I would be out because of course I failed the scene. And uh, so now Diana, you get to take my place and start a new scene with Kathleen asking only uh, lines in the form of a question. So how about you guys are at the grocery store? I'd like a pound of apples, please. That is not a question. Uh, oh, it's not a question. <laughs> Fail. Um, do Let's you, give you another try. Do you, do you have any pink lady apples? Oh, would you like our red pink lady or our fuchsia pink lady? Do you have any other colors besides pink? How do you feel about purple apples? Do they taste sweeter? <laughs> Does an elephant make really loud noises when it stops? <laughs> Have you ever met an elephant? Do, how how could you tell? How could you tell that I used to work with elephants? How could I tell? What was it? Was it the was it the big, was it the big elephant hat I'm wearing on my head? I love that one because you're right. It's a good if you have someone that gets into questions, you just blurt them all right out of the way. But I think it also really forces you to you know, if you don't want to continue going in circles of saying like, how can I ask a question and still move this forward, both respond and in question form. And as I tell people, it's really easy to go one way. And then if you get stuck going in one direction, then you realize all of a sudden, oh, there's another way that I could phrase this. So we build onto the scene. So instead of saying, uh, does an elephant make a stomping sound when it walks? You can say, well, I'm an elephant expert. And I can tell you an elephant does do this. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that is us out of time. Thank you once again. I'm going to go away and practice that um, my question <laughs> one. Will you? I, I, uh, I will. Don't you think that she will? <laughs> you see, you've got a lot of work to do. Thank you so much, Adam and Kathleen. Back next week for more improv. Bye. Bye. And that is almost it for today's show. As we didn't have a chance to speak to the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Monica Palmer today, a quick note from the symphony to say that they are replacing their usual Hot Summer Nights Live Festival with a virtual season called Hot Summer Nights Greatest Hits, showcasing some of the best performances from the past decade. And maestro Kirk Trevor will be revealing more about that at his Coffee with the Conductor virtual event on Saturday, May the 16th. So, thank you so much for staying at home and for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until we can all be together again. Stay arty, Columbia!